0: Welcome to the IOD's Director's Briefing podcast. This podcast is produced by the IOD's Policy Unit and provides timely updates, insights and commentary on the key issues of the day impacting business leaders.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Alex Ho Chen, principal policy Advisor at the IOD, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Directors Briefing podcast series. Today we're going to be reviewing what happened in the business world in 2023 as well as look ahead to the key issues facing businesses as we enter 2024. I'm delighted to be joined by experts from across the business community, including Alex Beach, Director of Policy and Insights at the British Chambers of Commerce, Fahim Khan, Senior Economist at Make UK, Craig Beaumont, the Chief of External Affairs at the Federation of Small Businesses, and Roger Barker, Director of Policy and Governance at the IOD. So to kick things off, Roger, could you give us an overview of the year in business?
2: Well, yes. Uh, um, hello, everyone. Um, it, yeah, this, that's quite an ambitious task, but let me perhaps begin by taking us all back to where we were at the start of 2023. I mean it does seem like quite a long time now but we were in I would say some turmoil. Uh, It was just a few months on from um, the mini budget and the ill-fated Liz Truss administration. We were on to our fourth prime minister in four years. Uh, Businesses were feeling incredibly anxious about high energy prices, rising interest rates, high inflation. And based on the IUD's own measure of business confidence, business confidence really was at a very low level. Um, I think in terms of what happened after that, in the rest of the year, um, it was a year to some extent of two halves. Um, Business confidence seemed to pick up somewhat in the first part of the year, albeit from a very low level, Um, but then nosedived in June. And certainly based on our measures, measures, it hasn't really recovered since then. And if you're looking at the year in terms of GDP growth, it's pretty much been um, a sideways move. Uh, The economy's flatlined. We won't know the final growth figures uh, for a little while yet. But, but really nothing much um, to really uh, brag about. But, you know, in the midst of all that, there has been some some good news along the way, um, I think. Energy prices have come down. Inflation is now down below 5%. We may now be at the end of the interest rate increasing um, cycle. And on the policy front, um, there was some Good news, some good developments. Um, Back in February, uh, we had the Windsor Agreement, uh, which I think to some degree stabilised the relationship with the EU um, in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol. In July, we signed up to the CPTPP. Um, The Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, I still can't really remember that very well, but um, that I think was a positive uh, positive development, although we still don't have an FTA with with India. We did in the spring budget have what I think was a a positive um, development for business, which was the introduction of full expensing on capital investment, which... At that time was only temporary, uh, but has since been made permanent in, in the recent autumn statement. And also back in that April uh, budget, the government committed significant resources to the expansion of of child support. But, you know, as the year has gone on, um, It has become, I think, in policy terms, more political. You know, there was a sense of political stability that existed when Rishi Sunak was in his earlier months at the beginning of the year. But that sense of stability has really started to unravel um, in the latter part of the year. And in fact, we've seen some major U-turns on business policy Uh, in May, for example, there were significant changes to the retained EU law bill, uh, which were announced uh, with some controversy. In September, the government pulled back uh, from the deadlines in terms of selling new petrol and diesel cars and phasing out of gas boilers, which was criticised by, by uh, the, the NGOs supporting a faster transition to net zero. The northern leg of HS2 was cancelled in October. If you remember the Conservative Party conference, uh, we've seen pullbacks in corporate governance reforms. And as we speak, there is a huge amount of political turmoil in terms of changes to immigration rules. I, one thing I should mention, which was, was, I think, a big thing for business in 2023, was that AI really took centre stage as a, as a big business issue. Uh, The UK had a global first in November in hosting the AI Safety Summit at Bletchley Park. Still no uh, real clear view in terms of how AI is likely to be regulated in the UK, but it's really become a very prominent uh, business issue. So I suppose to conclude perhaps 2023 wasn't quite such an eventful year in terms of politics and the policy environment as 2022 which was quite frankly hard to match in terms of political turmoil but there was a lot going on and now of course we've got the general election in sight and that is really colouring a lot of what we're talking about.
1: Great thanks very much for that overview Roger I'd like to open it up to, to the panel now so Looking back at 2023, what, from your perspective, were some of the key policy developments, both positive and negative? Craig, could we come to you first?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, and thank you to to you and to Roger for having us on your on your podcast. Um, so, I think we have a slightly different view on some of these things. So, we I would look at this this year as a, a very negative first start, and a kind of improving as we got to the end. I think the spring spring budget was was pretty bad for small businesses. There was not very much in it. Full expensing is primarily for large businesses uh, due to the rate of corporation tax going up um, beyond a certain level and the investment allowance looking after all small businesses. And childcare itself was a great statement uh, but we have concerns within the sector especially which is dominated by small providers uh, that they're going to struggle to understand and to deliver the, the pledge. So I would give the spring budget probably a mixed at best reception but probably a negative one following from a pretty weak autumn statement. But then you move to this autumn statement and You know, We we changed changed our strategy uh, and we ended up with the Chancellor name-checking FSB twice, which I'm very pleased with, of course, uh, very selfishly, uh, but also doing a whole section on our top three asks, which were about tackling late payments, really important issue. And we only ever make progress when the Chancellor gets interested, even though it's a DBT issue. So that's now a message we can use and we can leverage with big businesses, uh, such as on the Prime Minister's Business Council, (coughs) who should all be paying promptly, And then on on things like business rates, where you had big business arguing for a freeze on the multiplier um, for all people who pay business rates, we said, if you've got a billion pounds to spend, you should focus and target it where your firepower has most impact. So we said, do it on the SME-focused retail hospitality and leisure discount, 75%, and then the small business multiplier. So basically, you're, you're, you're using the tax system to say, okay, I can see who needs most help or where it'll have most impact. And tilting it, not doing everything uniform, not doing everything for everyone, which wasn't very popular at all with the um, with the largest businesses. And I guess finally, I'd touch on self employment because there was, you know, FSB was set up uh, in response to a High con National Insurance. So we are always lobbying every uh, every fiscal event to try and get some help, and we managed to get self employment training, all of it made tax deductible, and that's really important in this today's economy of trying to um, get everyone skilled for the new, for the new jobs. Roger mentioned immigration. Well, if you need to upskill your local population, everyone is always focused on employees, and you should think about the self-employed too, who will now be able to learn new skills. So, I am thinking of you know a bricklayer who's maybe in their maybe my age, late forties, uh, thinking about a new career. Uh, in you know, if they're going to learn something in the new economy, what would it be, and then train themselves up in it. Now they can do that, and they can get the tax support. So, I'd say the year started poorly. You are right to point at energy in particular as the crisis, and they scaled back the energy support. Uh, but ending the year quite strongly.
1: Brilliant, thanks so much. Fahin, what's your perspective? Yes,
3: um, I'd like to follow up on that. I, th- I think yeah, Craig is right as well. We saw a very similar um, year. I think it was quite mixed and it got quite good towards the end of it. Of course, from a manufacturer's organisation um, representing businesses in, in, in that sector, um, full expensing being made permanent was quite a big um, change for us. Uh, and just like the FSP, you know, Make UK were also name checked twice by the Chancellor one on full expensing and the other one was on the apprenticeships um, but it, it's also true that full expensing would obviously be mainly for uh, bigger businesses but we do have about according to our own surveys about 15 to 20% of manufacturers who were previously maxing out the annual investment allowance every year um, for the last couple of years so actually there was a, a, a big a middle group of businesses who were partially constrained by that limit and now that has been unlocked for them and the ability to plan long term. Um, there were a few um, Wins, I guess policy wins this year that we were quite pleased with um, the extension of the CE marking recognition, particularly for manufacturers, was a, it was a huge um, development. I mean, we've been banging on to government for a long time now that it just didn't make sense to go from CE to UKCA. And whilst many businesses had invested substantial amounts of funds to ensure that they met those requirements when government did eventually realize that <laughs> there was no need to continue doing that only for a selection of goods, by the way, so it wasn't the perfect response. We wanted to cover all types of goods, but it was only for a selection. Um, Shows that, um, you know, we have moved in the the right direction. The other thing I think is rejoining the Horizon Europe program, which, you know, manufacturers in particular who are, so some of the biggest innovators in the UK were su- supremely uh, concerned about the fact that since 2020 we have had no access to collaboration and science science funds from, from the, uh, the European Union and now that we've joined that again. I think what we would have liked to have seen more of though was a, big, a bigger focus on the apprenticeship levy. I think whilst we had an announcement on funding for apprenticeships, it wasn't what we were looking for, which is a root and branch approach to reviewing the apprenticeship levy, which... resulted in a 40 percent decline in apprenticeship starts since its inception so it's a big problem for us we don't think that the changes that's been made to r d tax credits are necessarily going in the right direction i mean it's some of it is positive for big businesses but there's also a negative impact on smaller smes who are often seen as the incubators of um, innovation many large manufacturers tend to subcontract r d down to smes Um, and i think what we were hoping to see in the autumn statement um, was probably an announcement on the carbon border adjustment mechanism. Um, look, we think something's still going to happen on that, but there was a delay um, down to um, negotiations that we're having with a certain country at the moment who are not big fans of CBAM. Um, and so, so we are waiting imminently for something on that.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Faheen. Alex, what's the view from the Chambers of Commerce?
4: Oh, thanks, Alex, and uh, again, yeah, thanks for having us on the on the, podca- on the podcast. Uh, um, it, I, I'm going to add a few things I think that perhaps come across our desk a little bit more because we work as part of a, a nationwide network of, of associations, so we get the sort of view from from outside of of Westminster quite a lot. And, and I think um, this, uh, the government's been really interesting in a lot of its interventions this year. So the national level ones that everyone said. We 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 agree. I, I think I think that's right. The autumn statement was broadly positive. I wonder if there's a, a bit of an emerging squeezed middle thing going on here, as as Craig said. You know, we had the the full expensing, predominantly for larger businesses. Um, we have had changes to R and D tax credits, as Fahim alluded to. The, what big problem there we find is the administration of how it's working. But we'll see if the new the new approach and the extra resource they're putting in helps. Uh, business rates is just really interesting because Craig rightly says you know there are there um, are some um, continued reliefs and a freezing of the so called multiplier at the smaller end and the different sectors. But um, you know we hear from sort of middle middle sized firms quite a lot who are not uh, uh, benefiting from those uh, from those uh, freezes and costs and are seeing things. Getting more expensive, so um, I, th- I think I think the government did the right thing though to balance out some of its interventions for big and with small companies. It's just let's not miss let's not miss out the sort of bigger chunk. And, th- and then the regional thing I was alluding to is that um, a- across these national things, there are also some very specific targeted geographical policy interventions that have been going on for some years now, um, which actually divide opinion. So you've got free ports and you've got investment zones, to name but two. And the thing about the investment zones is um, it's really good if you've got one and it's less good if you don't. And there is a concern uh, among the chambers about displacement. So is this really attracting business from this town to that town rather than generating new business? And and we tested this with um, we've recruited an independent panel of recruited all volunteers a a, a panel of um, economic academics and we said look this is what the chambers have said is this a thing in economics is this sort of displacement uh, a risk And they said yes it is a risk you know so it's it's something we we want to sort of pick into a bit and we'd love to see a policy that sort of lifts a, a tide that lifts all boats all sizes of business all places and all sectors as far as that's possible Without necessarily kind of picking winners, and I think the the, the only other thing I would say is, um, we've uh, uh, on um, on emissions on climate, we're at a really interesting point now because we've had such a green set of governments over the last fifteen years or so, give or take. It's been quite an apolitical thing. It's been a, a consensus. Um, It's been boring. It's been, let's have a law and policy and let's look at how we're doing. And we're just at a moment now where we think it might be switching to a sort of political football, which we're a little bit uncomfortable with. So we would like to see um, a return to a green consensus and a more stable policy framework. And there's nothing wrong with being pragmatic and amending policies that aren't quite landing or too expensive or just won't be deliverable but let's make sure we keep the eye on the prize and we don't make it a sort of value judgment about whether we are green or otherwise.
1: Great, thank you, Alex. And I mean, off, off the back of that, what are some of the key issues that, um, that looking ahead to 2024 you'll be focusing on, especially in the run up to the general election?
4: Is that back to me, Alex? Or is that is, yeah. Um, <laughs> right, so I, I imagine like everyone else, we've, we've been um, engaging with the major parties for some time now. Um, And we're just finishing up um, a a quite ambitious set of of policy research work as well and and various different topics. But it it always seems to come back to the fundamentals um, and the the basic essential building blocks of business life, such as planning reform, um, stability on energy prices, people, um, uh, certainty of investment, um, tax policy that is drives um, drives investment and incentivizes the right kind of activity. Um, trade, he mentioned trade, um, a, a more stable position with the EU, uh, perhaps a more long term view about divergence um, or mirroring of, of EU regulation. And and really, it's it's we are trying to land those points in, in as in as spiky but as productive and um, helpful way as we can. That that let's let's. Let's not forget, along with all the the whiz bang AI technologies and all this really cool stuff that's going on. Let's let's really get these fundamentals right. I think if I just say one thing that, that perhaps didn't quite get a lot of play in the in the previous comments, the the, the, the shortage of people is really chronic. I think Roger mentioned immigration. Um, echo that. It's very expensive. It's very much getting much more difficult to hire people from overseas. Uh, we've seen a lot now of interventions around. Um, encouraging people back or into the workplace, whether through childcare, through better occupational health, reforms to doctors' fit notes and and many other things. Um, That is is really urgently required. And we're pleased the government's looking at that stuff and taking it much more seriously because if we're not going to budge on immigration, we really do have to do everything we can. And also as the business community, to provide sort of flexible, um, appropriate jobs that people want to do and can do because we all know good jobs are good for people but they got to be the jobs people are really up for doing and are able to do.
1: Absolutely, and for him, what's the perspective from, from Make UK in terms of um, your focus in the run up to the general election?
3: Yes, certainly, of course, um, because we are, we obviously know that it, given it is a uh, kind of an uncertain political year with the general election, we have to be um, maybe quite smart about where what we're targeting. Although we have a lot of areas of um, development that we would like to focus on, the main thing which is our campaign that started this year was on industrial strategy and having an industrial strategy for support of the manufacturing sector. Um, you know That ambition will continue into 2024, um, which will look at things like what comes next for full expensing. The Treasury is um, intending to open up consultations on expanding to leasing, which is something that we would favor a development for. Um, our evidence shows about 15% of manufacturers uh, um, acquire all their plan of missionary with uh, entirely through leasing and higher purchase agreements. And when you break that um, data down by business size. It's 100% all located within the SME population and none within the large manufacturing population. So I think that's a certain area. Um, something that government has been ignoring a little bit, and I think it's because it's quite a difficult message to get through, is also the inclusion of secondhand plant machinery. Um, when we're thinking about net zero um, and sustainability, um, and the focus on upcycling and making use of um, reusing refurbished equipment that can benefit from circular economies. Uh, we think that there are some major benefits to having access to second-hand machinery um, for businesses. And so we're going to be definitely looking at that um, from an innovation perspective, um, you know, digital 4.0 um, or industry 4.0. Um, you know these things will remain a huge priority for us. Of course, uh, I mentioned the R&D tax credits already. The other thing I didn't mention was the rollout of Made Smarter, um, which is a program that's specific for manufacturers um, to the UK, the rest of the well, the rest of the England uh, regions, um, starting from 2025. Um, whilst we are super, super pleased about that development from government side, we know that Made Smarter is not also without its criticisms. Um, it doesn't run that well as a service. Um, you know, manufacturers can't use it more than once according to its own rules. Um, funding can take after an awful long time to be released for some businesses. And so I think we definitely focus on, you know, how we can ensure that process is efficient before it is rolled out um, nationally. Um, I think is an interesting stat for the UK in terms of robotics density ranks uh, 24th in the world in terms of for every robot, for, uh, uh, how many robots it has for every 10,000 employees. Um, if we have an ambition to try and get that. We think that needs to be up in the top 10. There's no reason for us to be so low on that league table, given that we are, um, you know, a top six economy in the world. Um, and, of course, workforce, skills, labour is going to be a, a huge prize for us, not just the apprenticeship levy, but also looking at things like green skills, digital skills, um, the skills of tomorrow. Um, manufacturers are now increasingly competing with the big tech companies and financial service industry for the same skill sets because they're all looking at digital skills now.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, him, Craig, what's, the, what's going to be the focus at FSB?
0: So um, I, my previous role was actually working on the London 2012 uh, Olympic and Paralympic Games, which are cross-party through and through. It's baked into it. And I kind of brought that across to FSB. So we will work very closely with all parties. Uh, and we do a lot of work with Labour. They They'll just announced um, last month a small business action plan uh, with 10 of 10 things. And the primary thing in there really is their promise on late payments, adopting our proposal to give audit committees of big companies Oversight of payment practices as a way to get towards the all board kind of ownership that I know IoD also supports. Um, so that's really fundamental, and that would be the big change that that will add. You know, if we were catching up with other countries, we would our economy would be two and a half billion pounds bigger. We'd save fifty thousand small businesses each year from going under, um, and the rest of the world is now moving forward on late payments. So I guess this general uh, action moment is a way for the parties to compete on how they'll approach this. Uh, Looking at the fact that Holland has banned late payments beyond 30 days, the whole of Europe is about to, through the EU in the next two to three months, agree a new time limit and basically make things a lot, lot tighter. Larger businesses are arguing against this, of course, as you'd expect, but um, we think that paying your suppliers promptly is a key to being a good business. So I think this becomes a moment really on late payments to, to crystallize people's views what do we think a good business really is in the UK? Uh, and I think, you know, we'll be driving that very, very hard. Um, I think a bit like Alex, Alex has a different, your structure slightly different to us. We are, we are uh, uh, like a trade union. We have local members right across the country, 160,000 of them. So we'll be looking at the election about how do you support these people as pillars of the local business community? You know, all our members are out there. They're generating employment. They're generating growth. What does policy need to do to help with both of those two things? And we always end up, I think, coming back to cash and people. So the government has just announced um, uh, that they are taking the LP's the highest possible view of their Low Pay Commission's recommendation on the National Living Wage. National Living Wage is brilliant, and they've made the, you know, they've they've made the target set. Now, when, as you go forward, that big increase following another big increase the year before. that small businesses at the bottom end may struggle to afford the living wage so our argument is that fsb's you know i'm personally i think it's our biggest ever lobbying win was the employment allowance we we had the idea we went in and sold it george osborne adopted it it's been expanded four one two three four times um we are now hoping to expand that at the spring budget so my thought probably about the election is don't forget about the spring budget um there's going to be a lot of competition around that for what the government can say it would do if it was a re-elected and also labour beginning to really flesh out its policy where does it stand on things because this 20 percent gap in the opinion polls is you know feels as though it's going to be there for a long time yet and if it's there at that moment labour will need to back that up with proper policy and the conservatives will be fighting uh, with new policy so i actually think for all of us the next 12 months we're probably all at our most powerful. It's when every politician is listening, every MP, every local candidate, and we all need to go in. And we have slightly different asks, some big, some medium, some small, sometimes all three. Uh, but it's going to be a great year, I think.
1: Brilliant. Uh, a wonderfully optimistic take there. I love it. And Roger, what about the, the IOD What uh, we'll be focusing what? on?
2: Well, let me, let me pick up on a few things that, that, that people have been saying. I mean, just uh, in terms of late payments, um, you know, really agree with Craig about the importance of this and uh, we'd actually like to see the government go further in terms of encouraging more transparency in terms of the payment practices of, of large companies and actually start to uh, publish almost in a name and shame way uh, to make more prominent, uh, you know, what they're actually doing. I mean, in theory, um, large companies are required to, to, to publish their their payment practices. But something that we've found out with with IOD members is that um, very few of our members are aware of how to find out this information. And so, if it could actually be taken up by the media, I think that could make a real difference. And I would certainly agree with the the FSB in terms of making the issue of payment practices a a board level responsibility through 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 a responsibility of a boardroom committee, like like the audit committee. And I, I know that um, the Labour Party were talking about that in their small business plan, which they, they just published. I think, um, you know, what Alex was saying about the need for certainty in, in, in terms of policy and a degree of stability, I think that is incredibly important. Uh, I mean, what we've seen in policy over the last six months is a lot, as, I, as I was saying, a lot of U-turns, a lot of dropping of long planned changes. And that, um, you know, that really doesn't do much for the credibility of the policy process and for the ability of, of companies to plan. I think our members have been very um, consistent in saying we do need some kind of industrial strategy um you know to to connect with what Fahim was saying uh, i suppose the question is what that that industrial strategy actually should consist of um our members are very keen that it's not a kind of uh, picking winners either at an individual company level or sectoral level um but that it's actually much more more broadly based um so i think but i think there's still really a debate to be had as, in terms of how how we how we structure uh, an industrial strategy. I mean, ultimately, it's the, the key thing which is going to drive business forward is whether there can be growth uh, generated in the system. Um, and at the moment, for example, that the, the fiscal headroom of the government is looking incredibly limited. I'm not really sure what what. The government can do in any fiscal event ahead of the next election, given where we are now, unless something really dramatic happens in terms in terms of growth prospects. But the long, the longer term issue, of course, for the UK is is productivity growth. You know, how do we actually drive that? Um, I mean, we, you know, we'd like to see the the government doing even more than it has done in areas like uh, developing skills, you know, addressing the skills shortages. And uh, it was interesting to look back at uh, Rishi Sunak's May's lecture back in uh, 2022, where he was talking about how to use the tax system to incentivize uh, the development of vocational skills by companies. We'd really like to see uh, uh, the, uh, the government go further in that direction in the future. I mean, we'd like, for example, to see a um, some kind of tra- tax credit or super deduction for incentivizing um, skills training in areas of specific skills need would like to see the government set up uh, something like a a skills shortages agency which could kind of do a systematic analysis within the economy of where the areas of skills shortage are and provide financial incentives uh, to companies to try and fill those skills gaps i mean on the on the um, sort of net zero agenda i mean that It's certainly taken, I think it would seem, a bit of a hit uh, over the last few months. Uh, It's not exactly the number one uh, high-profile issue for the government. And I know that the government is subject to political pressures in in this area. But we're still absolutely convinced that there needs to be a better business proposition for SMEs to make the transition. Um, You know, all our polling suggests that most smes want to do their bit and smes actually are are responsible for probably around half half the emissions of the of the entire economy so we have to bring smes with us in in, in this journey but there has to be a compelling business proposition for for them to do that and I mean, there are various ways in which this can be addressed. I mean, the thing that we've we've suggested is that that um, net zero companies should benefit from a lower rate of corporation tax, um, and, the, and if they can certify that they have um, uh, hit net zero, the Skidmore review, which could Something that came out uh, at the beginning of this year was talking about a Help to Green campaign with uh, vouchers for SMEs to plan and invest in their carbon uh, transition. So we'd, we'd like to see that as well.
0: Well, that um, was that was not to interrupt you, but that sorry, the Help to Green was actually our idea. We when and we got your guys' support as a a B as a group of business groups we were really iod i think was first to join uh, and then the other uh, members of the v4 also joined it so the government did listen and there is a pilot scheme about that it's not called up to green i think i wish it was because we could trademark it but um <laughs> um but you know there is a pilot scheme that i under grant chaps that now needs to be expanded yes. you know it's in place people are now being you know people are now able to apply for it but it, it's a bit too small scale and you're right this challenge is going to be massive, and I think after the cost of living crisis has dominated politics and our, our lives for business in business policy terms for at least a year after the election, you could, I, I would agree you can certainly see it coming back as the major issue facing or facing our lives, facing the planet.
2: Absolutely, and Fahin, your point—I think your point about R and D tax credits was, was was very well made. Uh, I know that the in the autumn statement, the, the government has tried to, to to sweeten the pill somewhat in terms of. Um, you, you know, the kind of benefits it's offering to SMEs uh, in, in terms of the new scheme. But I, I mean, our view was that that was a value R&D tax credits. The two schemes which existed were a valuable incentivization of R&D activity. And yeah, we we, we were rather concerned that the, the government decided to kind of do away with that and reduce Thereby, of course, reducing the cost of the scheme, but but really, that was that was that a reasonable saving?
3: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because um, they they've done this under the pretense of simplifying the um, the, the support itself, so that businesses can access it themselves. But actually, they may have just combined all of its problems rather than its benefits. Um, the issue that the Treasury points to is that ever since the introduction of the R&D tax credit system, which I think started in maybe 2001, maybe, so it's been around a very, very long time, um, there's been this uh, middle market emergence of consultants and specialists who um, you know, knock on the, the doors of every SME and says, I will help you get the most out of your R&D tax credits. And these are very, very clever people who are able to maybe account for things that you could say are maybe not really art research or not really development, but they're very good at um, defining in such a way Uh, and the Treasury is very keen to do away with that so that manufacturers and other businesses can apply for themselves. The problem is, is that it hasn't become any simpler to access by combining um, the the different tools. Um, And so, you know, this problem will still exist. Um, And actually, it will only make it more difficult for SMEs by not having a more generous scheme specifically for them because manufacturers, particularly large ones, don't often do the R&D themselves. Um, OEMs, uh, Tier 1 manufacturers, they are often... The assemblers, they assemble the cars, they assemble the airplanes, they buy the parts from the smaller companies and they put it together. They're not creating the the actual products themselves. It's actually the supply chain that's doing that, which is filled with SMEs um, in, in the UK. So we, we have to remember who is R&D tax credits really for and then approach it from that direction. Just the other thing I wanted to just go back on just a little bit, Roger, on the, on the net zero topic as well. I, th- I thought it was very, very interesting. Um, and and we, have, we have seen so many issues around the, the, the journey to net zero and decarbonization, especially for manufacturers who have shown incredible um, desire to invest in new technologies like solar panels, like wind farms, and that sort of thing. Um, and what we have found is that quite, quite, a lot, quite often when a manufacturer tries to, let's say, cover their roof with solar panels, um, the engineers will often tell them, you can't cover more than 10% or 20% of it because once you do, you will overload the grid or you'll, you won't necessarily, the infrastructure is not in place for you to be able to do that. I mean, it makes uh, business cost sense um, to do so. Um, it's also the right thing to do, which is something our manufacturer members tell us. They say, you know, I have kids, I have grandkids now, we need to do this for them. Um, they're willing to do it but then you know there's this element of like what should the government you know where's the gap that they need to fill and then and there is a huge capacity issue from the, the infrastructure side to enable manufacturers who are willing to use solar wind hydrogen all these different things um and so you know we maybe that's an area of focus for 2024 as well i mean the advanced manufacturing plan although i don't know if that was really the right place to do it mentioned some of these theme- these themes but uh, i think some some more work needs to be done there
2: yes um, alex i mean one thing we haven't spoken that much about so far is trade and you know there's no doubt that we've got we've got to find a way somehow to kickstart um the uk's exporting Performance, which it you know, hasn't hasn't bounced back as we would want it, um, you know, since since the since the pandemic. And in in 2025, we're going to be reviewing the the trade and cooperation agreement with with the EU. Are there are there any specific things that the the, the Chambers is, is sort of wanting to see negotiated into in, into that review?
4: Yeah, thanks for raising uh, trade. It's such a key part of certainly what the the Chambers do, and I think many of your or perhaps all of your members. Uh, do do a lot of trade, or perhaps less less trade. I, I think the the the, tr- the data trends are, are pretty clear that, and, and this is where we have to be a little bit careful because it's such it, even talking about how our trade's doing after Brexit is quite gets quite touchy depending are speaking to. But the the data seems clear that, um, although in the in the round in the aggregate sense our tr- sort of quantum of trade or exports to the EU has come back. To um to sort of pre-COVID or sort of pre-Brexit levels in the round, you always have to look at the what might have been, and so there is an academic consensus that we could have our exports could have been, um, you know, a good few percent higher if we'd stayed in the EU, you know, and, and I suppose to those of us that were watching this carefully at the time, and my previous role was working in the district sector trade body and and and, and for the government on Brexit as well as a secondi and. Um, you you are that, you know, the, the act of leaving the single market and a customs union, it's an obvious point to make, has introduced a very large number of non-tariff trade barriers into the system that, that just were not there before. And so what we've seen generally is, and this is a story of business life in the UK, the larger businesses adapting better, the SMEs really having a hard time. And um, you can see in certain sectors... Agri food being the classic that exports really have reduced from from the SME side. Um, it's just about to get more difficult because the final stage of of really the final stage of Brexit really in terms of its trade requirements is hap- going to happen during the next twelve months or so, which is the introduction of import controls and import certification requirements on all kinds of things like food, which the UK governments I think rightly but deliberately phased in over time. Um, to make sure the transition is is as good as it can be. So, yeah, we're just about to publish our TCA three years on, actually, Roger. So thanks for teeing me up for that. We'll have a lot of, of suggestions in there. But it, again, it's the fundamentals. It's can we get and can we please get an agreement on agri-food? The reason not to do that is if you want to do ambitious FTAs with food export to com- countries like the US, the reason to do it is to... Um, alleviate the pressure on the food the agri-food sector between us and the EU. It's a judgment at the end of the day, it's a kind of political judgment, but we we want the SPS agreement with the with the EU, um, and then we want really practical things like mobility schemes for young people, um, business travel made simpler. This is the one where Elton John got involved just after Brexit, touring for bands and orchestras and creatives, and, and the list goes on. Um, and, and there's a process, as you say rightly, there's, there's the formal review process coming up, not too long now, and many of our groups are involved in those dialogue processes, quite, quite rightly so, and, and so we do hope the sort of pragmatic voice wins out. I, I would say, though, to give the government some credit, um, and, and really tremendous credit for this, the Windsor framework, Touchwood, we think, from our Northern Ireland chamber seems to be going, going relatively smoothly, and it has made, so, I forget who said this actually, but... Um, one of our leader political leaders said that Northern Ireland is the most exciting economic zone in the world. Yes. So in, it's certainly a very in a very unique position uh, and indeed uh, significantly fascinating to uh, uh, Brexit geeks like us. So I, I, I think um, the best thing we can do now is make it easier to trade with the EU. That's the single biggest step to boosting exports. Um, but we are generally um, working well with DBT on export promotion. Um, of course, we can do more. We'd love to see more trade shows. You know, we, we, we're pleased with how many new deals are getting struck. Um, but we, we do need to think about, as well as the wider world, let's let's get the, the, the big player on our doorstep in a better place.
1: Now, of course, so much um, of what we've discussed is dependent on the outcome of the next general election. Um, I wonder what the panel thinks the, the date of the next general election will be and why. So who would like to take the first punt?
2: Well, uh, maybe. I'll, oh, I, 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 I sent some hesitancy there to. to so, OK, I'll go. I'll go first. I I mean, the conventional wisdom has been just that the government will just want to wait as long as possible because it's in such a dire position in the opinion polls. And it will just, well, you know, hope that something will happen. Maybe it's Falkland's moment will happen and then it will it will suddenly rebound. But uh certainly what happened in the it, things that happened in the autumn statement kind of lead me a bit towards the idea of an earlier general election. And just simply the fact, as I as I mentioned earlier, that the government seems to have used up its fiscal powder already. And so I'm not sure what more it could actually deploy um, at an April budget um, to sort of lead it into um, a general election later in the years. So that, that makes me think perhaps an, an earlier General election. Is that your final answer? Yep, un- that's my final words. <laughs> I think it would be a bit like
0: Squid Game when you hold back for a bit. If you're watching that at the moment on Netflix, um, so uh, I think we're all dying to talk about it. I, so I've actually changed my mind twice in the last couple of months. Uh, I've changed it one way, back one way, and back. And I'm I'm now moving towards a later election. Um, I just think that the government's doing all it can so that it enables itself to have as many options as possible so that if things do change over the next few months and they do look at a potential early budget and then go into the country quickly, if that does suddenly become a lot more... Well, the Rwanda situation gets more stable, I can see it happening, uh, but the the path to a late election means you, you face a bad local election result, likely for the government party, um, but in my view, if you're polling twenty points behind, it's already factored in that you're going to do pretty badly at the local elections in May. So it doesn't actually change your your perspective. You also, of course, have a summer of potential um, increase in illegal immigration, uh, which leads you on your kind of solo big policy. Where what was it this this week? The prime minister is losing patience with it. Well, if we're still debating this over the summer, that's a problem. So I think. I'm actually leaning, leaning back towards a later election rather than an earlier one, but they're doing very clever stuff like the national insurance rise in January, which means that you've got uh, Labour being challenged on a Conservative policy early, and then the money will be in people's pockets, and hopefully their aim is that people feel better off in the spring. So I'd, I'd agree they've set the way for an early election, but they won't go for it, it'll be late
3: i'm happy to you know have a crack at this i had to actually speak to my government affairs colleagues because i wasn't too sure about when we're to expect but actually we we said something quite similar to craig i mean we are actually expecting something maybe around autumn 2024 potentially even january 2025 because that's obviously the deadline so maybe not even any election next year um because the you know the current uh, sta- you know, status is not in the incumbent party's favor at the moment and they may watch to wait as long as they can to just flip things. Um, but the alternative is that, as you said, Roger, you know, they on the back of the, uh, the autumn statement just gone. That there could be one in May 2024, to, which would coincide with the uh, mayoral le- elections as well. Uh, and so there is potentially an opportunity there. So, you know, it's difficult to say. I think uh, much of what uh, will happen will play out will play out depending on what the uh, party pre- decides to do. Maybe at the spring budget. Um, we obviously have to be prepared for pre-election airing where there may be things said in those statements that you know we don't know with what degree of certainty they're going to last a long time or <laughs> if may to get votes but we shall see you know look do it
2: yep and of course we will bring these words back to haunt all of you um in the light of what actually happens but alex i wonder what you think well uh
4: funny enough um we we had a very long uh discussion about this at our planning meeting yesterday and couldn't decide on a preferred winner uh, spring or autumn. I guess uh, friends and colleagues who might have worked in really in the heart of politics would say keep an eye on the polls. If things sort of start picking up they might just go for it.
0: Can I chip, can I chip in an extra bit which is um, don't, don't forget America in all this. We've yeah. got this you know huge economy that will have an election in 2024 guaranteed in November uh, potentially with a president winning from prison. Um, so that, that, that destabilising uncertainty around an election that you have just because democracy is the right thing to have, but it is a destabilizer, means that there could be all sorts of interesting things happening. There's a lot more money in both sides of politics because the, the amount you're allowed to spend in the UK and the US is both radically up. So one thing we can guarantee is that whatever happens next, it's going to be very high profile with a lot of money throwing around in all sorts of directions, record numbers of donations and spend. Uh, so I think it's going to be it's going to be quite an exciting rollercoaster year.
2: Yes, and in fact, 2024 is the year of elections, isn't it? In, in, in a number of jurisdictions.
0: Oh, so where else are you thinking, Roger? Well, India.
2: Ah. <laughs> Let's not forget.
1: So still a huge amount of uh, uncertainty, um, huge implications for for business policy, of course. And uh, on that note, I'd like to thank all our panellists for joining today for a really insightful discussion um, about the business policy landscape. So thank you very much, everyone.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: We hope that you have enjoyed this Director's Briefing podcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to ensure that you are kept up to date on our future podcasts. You can find more information about our work on our website at iod.com forward slash news and on our LinkedIn and Twitter profiles. You can also contact us directly via policy-unit at
1: iod.com.